Isaiah says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday, and following that is Easter Sunday. And so we're moving into that time of where we tend to focus on Christ's triumphal entry and then his um, suffering and his death and then his resurrection. And so we're kind of moving into a time when that's kind of the focus because these these dates come around and we we celebrate those and we worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who was the one that suffered and died and rose again and what he's done for us. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded that so God is a holy God, completely holy. There is nothing unrighteous about God. He is completely pure. And yet our sins are a great offense to God. Because of his holiness and his purity and because of our sinfulness, there was this great chasm that needed to be crossed somehow for us to have a relationship with him. And so how can it be that our sins, though they be as scarlet and as crimson, can be white as snow? And I, I'm i not a real lover of snow, frankly. I like spring and summer and fall a lot better than winter. And it's not getting any better as I get older. Now, maybe when I get old enough that I don't have to go out and I just sit there and look out the window and watch it snow and watch the wind blow and let somebody else do all the other stuff. Uh, Maybe I'll like it better. I don't know. But I tend to like the warmer time. I like green better than white when it comes to outside. And yet there is something about a morning when maybe it's snowed all evening or all night and you wake up in the morning and everything's blanketed with snow and maybe and I like when maybe the sun's out then and it's just white and clean and there's a glistening and it's beautiful. It really is. And that is the analogy that God uses in his word to show what our hearts can be like even though our sins, any speck of sin, is God can't accept it. And yet he says it can be as white as snow, our hearts. So how do we get there? Is it just because, uh, well, God's a loving God and so that's the way it is? Well, you know, I I came across a passage and we're going to turn to it. I want you to turn to the book of Nahum. I come across this in some of my reading just recently and I, I was... This first chapter just kind of, uh, I guess I had never noticed it before quite like this. Because you see this back and forth between God's anger over sin and disobedience. And yet in the midst of that, you have this verse, The Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust him. We, We see that verse sometimes. Maybe it's on a plaque. Maybe it's on the front of the bulletin. Maybe it's somewhere or a little whatever you see. I would say, that's wonderful. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. Yes, he is. And he knoweth them that trust him. And it's beautiful. And then when I saw it in his context, I'm like, wow, this God. And yet that's who he is as well. 
And this God is the one who provided a way for us to be white as snow. So let's just, I want to read uh, the first nine verses of the book of Nahum. And it's about, if you're having trouble finding out, uh, those minor prophets are one of my struggles. I get them mixed up more than I don't, it seems like. <laughs> and so at my age, I may never get them all lined up like I want to. But anyway, it's about in the middle of the minor prophets there. Um, it's right after the book of Micah and right before Habakkuk. So chapter 1 of Nahum, the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth, the Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries. He reserveth wrath for his enemies. But now notice kind of the flip to this, the first part of verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger. And it says, and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry, drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. And now look at verse 7. In this context, the Lord is good, a stronghold or refuge in the day of trouble. And he knoweth, and I understand my Bible has a note for this, and I understand this would be pretty accurate. He cherishes them that trust in him. That, and that's verses in this context. And we go on to verse 8. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and the darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. We'll stop there. But when I saw that, I, I, it kind of jumped out at me that here you see God's being slow to anger, and God cherishing his people in, in the context of God saying, I'm not going to put up with this, this evil. I'm not going to put up with all this stuff. And it's basically, he was talking about Nineveh, and we could go into length talking about Nineveh and all that. We're not going to this morning, but that's the context that it's in. And so as I looked at that, I was like, wow. How can I be one of those that the Lord is my refuge and that he cherishes me? And that his anger is not against me. And we come back then to Isaiah where it says, Our sins, though they be red, crimson, scarlet, they can be as white as snow. And God has made a way throughout history for people to have a relationship with him. The question this morning is, for me and for every, all of us, do we have that relationship? Are we one that he cherishes because we have found our place in him? Now there's kind of this, and, and we're not going to go into this this morning, maybe sometime I should have a message on it or one of the ministers, but there's kind of this tension right now within conservative Anabaptism. I don't, you may not know this, and that's fine if you don't, but there are books being written and articles being published. Tension between was Jesus Christ a substitute or a sacrifice for atonement. And so there's this, this, this kind of this different people on different sides of that. And you're probably sitting here thinking, what does it matter? Well, and maybe 
Well, there are some theological ramifications if you take either one too far either way. But I say, and we're going to see this morning, I think he was a substitute and a sacrifice. I think the scripture brings that out. I don't think those have to be in opposition to each other. And they can be if you make it that way, but I don't think they are. And so we see from the very beginning that God, that there was a substitute and there was a sacrifice. And that starts uh, clear back in, in Genesis. But I want to go to Isaiah chapter 1 where I read from a little earlier. And read that passage, uh, read a few more verses out of Isaiah chapter 1. We'll read some other passages out of Isaiah later. But Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse, I think we'll start at verse 16. And this is in the context of God calling his people to repentance. And he gives the examples of Sodom and Gomorrah and so forth. But in verse 16, he says, Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. And if you think about that passage, you go into the New Testament when it talks about pure religion and undefiled for God is this. And it's talking again about the fatherless and the widows in that passage and to do separated from the world that believe is in that uh, verse as well. So he says here, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge your fathers, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And as you go through Isaiah, you see a lot of passages talking about how God's going to judge. You see prophecies about that, but you also see the promise of the Messiah. And we'll look at some chapters later talking, showing how God, Jesus Christ, is our atonement for sin and his shed blood. But here, there's a couple things to notice. In this context, there's a call for repentance, if you look in the whole context here. To have that Sin made to be white as snow, there needs to be a repentance. And it talks here about obedience. And it also talks about uh, stop doing evil, cease to do evil. And yet, to really make the heart white as snow, it takes the blood, the shed blood. And in the Old Testament here, it was animals and so forth, which could not take away sin like the blood of Jesus Christ did. But God has made provisions for this. So um, in Genesis, and you don't have to turn to that, it says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make coats of skins and clothe them. And some of you have probably been either at the Creation Museum or the Ark. I think it's the Creation Museum where they kind of have that thing you walk through that looks kind of like the garden, and then you see the sin and you see the the... I don't know if it's a goat or a lamb or what it is. I think it's a lamb that is has been sacrificed basically and the skin taken, and you know that is to, to make the coats for Adam and Eve. Up until this time, there had been no death. 
And now something was sacrificed. There was something that had to give its life for them to be clothed, to cover up their nakedness. And I think the fact that it was, uh, you know, sometimes we, you know, it says that they covered themselves up with fig leaves, but God made uh, coats of uh, skin for them. And sometimes I think we think, well, it's because the fig leaves weren't big enough to keep them modest. And I don't really think that was the case. I've seen some pretty big leaves and plants, and you know what? You can, you can sew a lot of stuff together and be modest. I don't think that was the issue. I think God said, I'm going to make you something to cover yourselves, but it is going to require the life of something. And so something had to die to properly cover the result of their sin. The fact that they knew that they were naked was because of their sin and disobedience. And God said, because of that, something's going to die, and then we will, that will be covered. Turn to Exodus. And I just want to look, and these are very familiar passages, I'm sure. But as we're thinking about kind of our focus and uh, toward the next, like I said, the next few weeks, thinking about the death and resurrection of Christ, just getting our, our focus there this morning. In, in Exodus chapter 12, we see the Passover instituted. And of course, it was at the Passover meal that Jesus told his disciples that these things represent me. I'm now the one. When you have this meal and you you, you have these emblems, the, and his, they're the, the, the wine and the bread, this represents me. It's no longer looking back at the Passover, but when you do it now, you look back at what I did for you. And so we're going to look here at when the Passover. So, and the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month, they shall take to them every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for a house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls or the people within their houses. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. And I, I think what you're seeing there is because we go on in this passage, you're going to see where nothing was to be left. You... you you were to eat everything of the lamb or it was to be burnt with fire. There was not supposed to be anything left. And I don't know all the connections to that in Christ, but I know one thing. You either take all of Christ or you take nothing. That's how it works. We are to take all of Christ and everything he did and everything he teaches and everything about him becomes for us to take. In verse 5 it says, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, and ye shall take it out of the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month, and the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And again, there's a connection here in the fact that they were to take this lamb, bring it in, raise it up, and then they had to put it to death. There was a relationship between the family, the people, or whoever it was, and this lamb. There was a relationship there. And yet, the lamb still needed to be put to death. 
They shall take the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses wherein they did eat it. They shall eat the flesh in the night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden it all with water, but roast with fire, his head and his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until morning. And that which remaineth of it until morning shall be burnt with fire. And thus shall you eat it, with your loins skirted and your shoes on your feet, staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial. You shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. God said, when I pass through the land to put the plague upon the people of Egypt and everybody there, when I pass through the land, when I see the blood, the blood of the lamb, I will pass over you. Now, it's kind of interesting as we move through the scriptures. Um, in this case, he says, I will pass over because I see the blood. But when we get to the New Testament, we see where uh, basically the, the sins are gone. They're, they're gone, but he does pass over us. And you've heard me say this before, but, you know, sometimes I hear people say, or maybe, maybe it's one of your storybooks you have that you, uh, your children read, or maybe you read it as a child and talks about the death angel passing through the land of Egypt. And uh, I actually think that's very wrong. There's no death angel looking for the blood. It's the Father himself. God himself, it says. He says, when I pass through the land, and I see the blood, I will pass over you. It's God that looks for the blood, and he still looks for the blood. Is the blood applied in my life? If it is, my sins are as snow, as white as snow. They're gone, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and washed away forever. Now, again, we go back to what Isaiah's talked about there in that context, yes, there is a call for repentance. There's a call for putting away sin. There's a call for living righteously. <clears throat> but the blood is what God looked for here. And he's still looking for the blood. When I stand before him someday, <clears throat> I will have either applied the blood of Jesus Christ to my life or I won't. And that's done by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and we could spend a lot of time talking about how that's all applied and New Testament, through faith, by uh, grace you saved, through faith, and so forth. But here, I would say it was faith as well. Can you imagine if you would have been one of these Israelites, and you had lived here, and you grew up here, your families had been here for hundreds of years now, longer than what America has been a nation, about as long as what people have been here, basically, and 
So pretty common. Everything's kind of going along. And then some guy says, oh, hey, God said you're supposed to do this with this lamb. And then you take uh, some hyssop and you dip it in the bowl and you spread it around the doorposts and the mantle and everything and you have to eat it a certain way and make sure you're ready to go when, when we do it because this... What would you have done? Would you have said, yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, let's just do it. Or, yeah, we've done this before. No, you hadn't done it before. And I don't know if they would have done it had they not seen the plagues this, the plagues coming up to this plague. By this time, God had gotten the attention of the Egyptians and the Israelites, I'm sure. Something about it was they did it. And the fact is, it was, again, it was done by faith, just like we have to apply the blood by faith. They did it by faith. We're going to do what we're told to do by God. And they were thankful that they did. Very thankful. I want to turn now back to Isaiah and look at a couple of chapters. Turn to chapter 52. And I know there's quite a bit of reading here, so I'd like if you would actually turn there and, and follow along. Because I know when you read a lot of verses, sometimes it's a little easy for someone to, to kind of, you know, your mind wanders off. But I thought to get the context of this, I'd like to actually read chapter 52. And then chapter 53 is where I'd really kind of like to focus and we'll, uh, on, on that. But, and just think about that. So chapter 52, starting at verse 1, Awake, awake. Put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, You have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. For thus saith the Lord God, My people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them make them to howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in what day I am he that doeth speak. Behold, it is I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publish peace and bringeth good tidings of good, that publish salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice. With the voice together they shall, um, shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people. He hath redeemed his Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart ye, depart ye. Go ye not from thence. Touch no unclean thing. Go ye out of the midst of her. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. For ye shall not go out with haste, nor by night. For the Lord shall go before you, and the God of Israel will be your reward. And now he begins to introduce here 
specifically what's in chapter 53. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations, and the kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that, that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard they shall consider. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs. He has borne our griefs. Think about that. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before his shears is dumb, so, openeth, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. He was made, And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall many righteous servants justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors and bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That was for your sins and for my sins that he did that. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And so as you think about these next couple of weeks coming up and what we're going to be celebrating, if you will, talking about, looking at. Remember, it was for our sins. Hebrews chapter 7. Verse 26 and 27. Speaking of Jesus, For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. And on over a couple of pages in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. 
For every, for every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. <clears throat> Excuse me, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. For after that he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. We have a wonderful high priest that gave his life, shed his blood for our sins to redeem us back to himself. And the question I have for each of us this morning is, have our sins been made white as snow? And that's up to each one of us to decide. God has made the way. Have we accepted that by faith? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for just the fact that we can remember, we can remember, Lord, what Jesus did for us and for these days coming up as we think about Good Friday and Easter and also our communion service that we'll be having as we commemorate this. Lord, help us to be focused on Jesus. Help us to remember that our sins are so offensive to you, and yet you can make us white as snow. Help us never to take it for granted. Help us to love and appreciate your provision, your shed blood. So Lord, we just want to thank you again for what you have done for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.